Good morning. I'm Ann Schindler, and this is First Coast Connect. It was the first African-American beach resort in Florida and a refuge for beachgoers in the segregated South. We talk with local historians and the property's property owner's family about how this piece of local history was nearly erased. Later in the program, author, international security expert, and retired Navy Admiral James Stavridis joins us ahead of his Jacksonville appearance. But first, we continue our exploration of little-known events in honor of Black History Month. Today, Manhattan Beach. Once a rare slice of sand for Jacksonville's Black residents, the former resort is now just a memory. You probably know it, in fact, as Hannah Park. I'm joined now by Dr. Yvonne Hicks, great-grandniece of Manhattan Beach's most prominent business owner, Mac Wilson. Hi, Dr. Hicks. Good morning. Good morning. Marsha Dean Feltz, author of a book on another legendary Black beach, American Beach, on Amelia Island. Hi, Marsha. Hello, Anne. Chris Hoffman, mayor of Jacksonville Beach and executive director of the Beaches Museum. Hi, Chris. Hi, good morning. And Brittany Cohill, executive director of the Mandarin Museum and Historical Society. Hi, Brittany. Hi, Anne. Brittany, you've lived and breathed the history of Manhattan Beach since you began your research, I think, in 2017. Mm -hmm, Why was this important story? Why did you want to tell this story? Well, it began when I was in graduate school, and I was um, doing a project for um, my public history course, and I was talking with a professor who, um, you know, we were talking about Hannah Park, and he said something um, referencing Manhattan Beach, and I thought, well, I've lived in Northeast Florida at the time for 35 years and had never heard of Manhattan Beach. And so I just started doing some digging. And at the time I was at Beaches Museum. And so it dovetailed nicely with our mission over there. And so I made it, um, you know, one of my major projects when I was in graduate school. And the more I learned about this story, the more I just truly felt that it needed to um, enjoy a more Um, broad understanding and really enter the historical canon of Jacksonville's history. Marsha Dean Feltz, you've written extensively about Historic American Beach, um, which was also created for Blacks during segregation, but Manhattan Beach actually predates American Beach by about three decades. Is that right? It certainly does. Manhattan Beach came about in 1899, 1900, when the railroad, uh, when Henry Flagler built the railroad that extended from Pablo Beach to Mayport. And that's when Manhattan Beach was developed. And the first of these kind of beaches where Black residents who weren't allowed in the Jim Crow South to go elsewhere were welcome. Well, it was one of the first in in Florida and in Northeast Florida. And uh, yes, Blacks could go to beaches like Pablo Beach, they could go to Pablo Beach one day out of the week. And Pablo that Beach was is on. now Pablo Jacksonville Beach. Beach. Is now, yeah, Jacksonville Beach. And so blacks could go to the beach one day. However, uh, when you have your own area, your own recreation facilities, you can go whenever there is time, whenever you are able to go. And it's, you know, the unique thing about these beaches is, when you have your own, it's no such thing as, well, you know, this is your day, this is your hour, these are the conditions. Blacks would go to Pablo Beach on Monday or upon certain arrangements, we could have baptisms in the ocean, uh, but these were arrangements done. And uh, so with having Manhattan Beach, it was a whole new experience and a great, great pleasure that lasted until it was purposefully destroyed in 1938 by developers or development and expansion of Pablo and Neptune beaches. So, And Dr. Yvonne Hicks, there isn't a lot of recorded and photographic history of Manhattan Beach, um, but this is a beach that was in your family, your great-granduncle, Mac Wilson yes. owned a lot of property there. Tell us a little bit about what stories you heard as a child growing up uh, and what you knew about Mac's businesses there at the beach. Well, um, Mac Wilson was my great-grandmother's brother, and he had four sisters. And over time, most of them moved from Tallahassee, Monticello, to Jacksonville, and we lived in La Villa. 
Mac Wilson was born in 1874, and he lived um, until 1944. And the many stories that I heard of about him uh, span a long period of time because his sisters really admired him. He looked out for them. Uh, we, they all lived in a similar community. Uh, actually, we could walk from one house to another, around the corner, down the street. But uh, this, this is in La Villa. This is in La Villa. Mm -hmm. And um, the streets are no more than three blocks apart. So I was one year old when he, when he died. But the stories have spanned through the life of his sister, who lived to be 96 years old. And, for example, they mentioned um, how... Uncle Mac is how we refer to him, Uncle Mac. He was my grandmother's uncle. Uh, that he always had projects going on. And his projects included a renovation and uh, a men's club uh, in the community and, a communi and community meetings. But he was known for um, his job at the, at the train station, at the depot. And he was the person who called the trains, their arrival and departure. And they, they spoke of him with such a, a wonderful attachment concerning how he called the planes and you could, the trains, and you could hear his voice all the way down the, the, uh, the um, all over the train station during the days and how personable he was he had a um, a real way of um, he had charm, and and he spoke well, and he was well read. That was one of the ways I, I saw the background for Mac Wilson, but also um, how much he uh, ensured that his children were well educated, and he would take on extra jobs. For example, he worked as a guide for for hunters, people who like the out of doors and who like the season for 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 hunting um in Florida. And he would um from time to time take people out on hunting expeditions near and far and usually in South Georgia and toward middle the middle of Florida. And he was he was also a major entrepreneur. I mean, you see his name in these photos of Manhattan Beach, um, buildings that he owned. And what kind of properties did he, did he have there? He, he rented rooms? Thank, yes, thank you for moving me to that because um, that is really primary for him. He, through his cousin Capitola Wilson, acquired some property from, from Mr. Flagler. And on that property, he built a three-story um, pavilion that uh, was a place for entertainment and food and for, for sleeping overnight and also for, for renting bathing suits. Tell me a little bit about that. I saw that he may have as many as a thousand bathing suits that he had to rent? That's, that's on the, uh, sometimes it depends on who you're having the conversation with, but yes, yes, absolutely. Um, he, there, there's a, a picture, a classic picture of Max Place. That was the name of his rest, of his uh, pavilion there. And there was also an, another, there was one more, I believe the name was Mr. Middleton also had a similar place on the beach. But uh, Max Place would draw entertainers from, again, around the country during that days. I guess people who, um, um, who were, I guess they were scheduled to entertain at Max Place. And the word would be out and people would come to Manhattan Beach. They would come on the train when necessary. If not, my grandmother said they would just drive down Beach Boulevard mm -hmm. until you reach the until you reach the um, the river. Um, it was a sixty cent train ride at that time from downtown Jacksonville. Quite possibly, I think that's what it's referred to in the book in in Marsha um, Dean's book. It's about sixty cents, and not only would in of uh, groups would come, Sunday school groups would come, mm -hmm. and uh, on Sundays 
it's interesting because people would dress up. They would be dressed in church clothes and hats, and uh, families would come there and have picnics, and they'd bring their children and um, just enjoy evenings, afternoons, the sunshine together. Marcia, you're nodding fervently over there. Most definitely people dressed uh, to come to the beaches, though it was recreation and you would go in the water with your swimsuits, but you were certainly men, women, and children were dressed. And I have some gorgeous pictures of my mother-in-law, her mama, her aunt, her cousins at uh, are those Man- them right there? Yes, these are the. Here, let's see, I can try at, to hold them up. Uh, for the... At Manhattan Beach. So we, and... we broadcast this later on YouTube, and I'm going to try to just hold up some of those pictures so yes, people can see those them. Those are from the 1920s. And uh, my grandmother, my mom, my daddy, they all enjoyed Manhattan Beach during the. Uh, extent of the time that it was in existence. And I call myself a beach lover. I am one because uh, I was born to be on the beach. And that's where I fully, you know, I live full time now. Mm-hmm. And my mom and dad, it, it, it's good to talk to your family. I asked mom how she met my daddy. And they were in a geometry class at Stanton, in, and they graduated in 1933. And you know what my mama told me? She told me that their first date was at Manhattan Beach. And I had a hard time believing my grandmama when I was about 10 years old, telling me how they got to Manhattan Beach. She talked about what Yvonne talked about. They came on the train. Well, at 10 years old, I didn't see any train tracks rolling down the side of Beach Boulevard, so I just figured Big Mama didn't know what she was talking about. No train could come to Manhattan Beach, but that was the only way they got to Manhattan Beach. That train is no longer there. Uh, Chris Hoffman, you're the mayor of Jacksonville Beach, and you are also uh, working at the museum that is houses a lot of this history where people can find out more Um, Tell us a little bit about how Jacksonville Beach has come to kind of reckon with that part of its history um, and work to acknowledge the erasure of this particular Black Beach. Absolutely. I think this project and when Brittany kind of brought it to me when she was at the Beaches Museum, it was just a real no-brainer for us to really pursue and pull the threads and see um, what we could find out and put together to bridge our community's past with its present. That's one of our goals at the Beaches Museum. So I think she took it from, you know, for us, we had seen Manhattan Beach. It was a stop on the Florida East Coast Railroad line. Um, It was mentioned, but there wasn't really a body of kind of collective work to talk about it. And I was really proud and impressed with how Brittany started to pull the strings on these stories was she went out and did community meetings. She went to places like Atlantic Beach. She worked with other archives around town, Jacksonville Historical Society, UNF. Um, We got to form relationships. And um, I remember sitting down with Mr. E at the Voussoir, other people that had, unfortunately, we really lost those firsthand accounts um, due to time. But we had so many wonderful secondhand accounts and um, photos and stories that she could really start to put together. Um, I remember every time she would come back from a presentation around town, she would have a new contact um, and someone that she could kind of talk to, get more information about. So really putting together uh, the information in terms of just just a body of work, articles, um, write-ups, and things like that, it then turned into a traveling exhibit. So uh, we did one exhibit and uh, started bringing that around different places. And then a second exhibit came about because of demand. So we had other um, organizations and venues that wanted to show the history of Manhattan Beach. And really, um, I 
didn't meet anybody that saw that exhibit for the first time that said, don't you mean American Beach? And that was really something we wanted to really shine a light on Manhattan Beach and its impact and its uh, role in our community, in our community's history. So bringing out that exhibit has been really important in sharing the story of Manhattan Beach across our community. Um, we also were able to put up a historic marker. So as you mentioned, where Manhattan Beach was previously, um, you would never know. There's no physical evidence of Manhattan Beach there. Um, I know Brittany spent a lot of time out in Hannah Park working with the city of Jacksonville Park staff there um, to help identify locations where things were. And ultimately, we worked with them to put up a historic marker. So now you do see um, at least a marker showing where Manhattan Beach was and probably one of the most proudest, the, the most proud moment that I had being with the Beaches Museum was being there for the unveiling when we had dozens and dozens of family members and descendants um, of Mac Wilson and others involved in Manhattan Beach there uh, for the unveiling. It was a, a really special time, very bittersweet, because, again, there was no physical evidence uh, but now there was a historic marker and it was just a really um, special opportunity for us as the Beaches Museum to be part of that. We're talking about the history of Manhattan Beach, which is the current site of Hannah Park. Uh, have you heard about this black owned resort? If you've got personal stories or you have questions about it, please give us a call at 904-549-2937 or email us at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. You can also message us on social media uh, and tag us on X at FCC on air. Um, Brittany, is there has there been any resistance that you've encountered? This is a difficult story insofar as it was a black owned beach. It was a resource and a refuge for African-Americans. Um, and it was essentially pressured out of existence, pushed out of existence by white developers and landowners. Is there resistance to sharing that story, to getting it out there? You know, um, I suspected that there may be. And surprisingly, I haven't encountered any. And um, even, you know, in on Facebook, you know, when we share things or, you know, when there's opportunity for public comment, I really didn't encounter any resistance. And um, and I think that speaks to the fact that how valuable this history is and how um, it really sparked just curiosity on the part of the general public. And we always approach this project, I think, just with a spirit of love and discovery for our community and um, for everyone living around us. And there was never any agenda as far as approaching or telling this history. It was just it was just all about the story and it was all about the people and it was all about the descendants. And um, so I think that helped with the reception. And um, and so, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised that, you know, I really didn't receive any resistance throughout this process. And um, when we installed the historical marker, um, I've had so many people um, that have said, oh, my goodness, this is so wonderful. I haven't I you know, I didn't know that Manhattan Beach was there. I had no idea. And, and it's at um, the historical markers at parking lot eight um, in Hannah Park, which is their busiest beach access, which is just fantastic because more and more people are able to see this marker and understand the history. And um, and so and I think Dr. Hicks would maybe um, concur with me, you know, throughout this process, um, we we never really encountered any resistance. I want to ask you about that, Dr. Hicks, because um as Mayor Hoffman alluded to, you know, it's a bittersweet um, recognition. How much is bitter and how much is sweet? Well, certainly the fact that um, Uncle Mac took on a project like that. I mean, he was, he he too shared the vision for black people having a place to go, a beach place where they could enjoy and not be harassed and not be confined to one day a week. But that's the proud part, and that he stuck with it until the end. That he, it was his vision, along with other prominent people in the community, the Lewises, for example, A.L. Lewis, um, they felt very strongly for, about the beach. And, and A.L. Lewis, just for people who don't know, was Florida's first black millionaire. He was the founder of the Afro-American Life Insurance Company, and he founded American, American Beach. American Beach, yes. Uh-huh. And... Um, Many people who worked at the Afro were able to purchase property there, I believe. Um, and the bittersweet is how it ended. Um, we He wanted to really see um, 
much, much more. Although he, he although he, he um, had many years, many good years, prosperous years on the beach. And um, he was known uh, for his, uh, his work. I mean, his, his location up and down the, um, the coast. But I think he would have wanted to see it not being taken away from him in that manner. Marsha. I, I want to speak to some of the bitterness to, towards the end of Manhattan Beach. As I said, 1938 was its last year of existence. In 1935, the American beach was established. However, you can see the decline of a community. You can see gentrification coming in. And as I look to the future, I see American beach being urban renewal or urban removal. And that's what happened at Manhattan Beach. It was removal, not renewal. And the bitterness, I talked with Miss Lassane. I can't remember her first name because, you know, as kids, you know, Miss this and Miss that. Elaine Elaine Lassane. There Uh were two two sisters. Elaine was one, and, I, you know, because I'm in Club 80, I won't remember the other (laughs) sister's name. Luther. Luther? Yes. Okay, well, I talked with them. I have pictures of Luther on mm-hmm. Manhattan Beach. Yeah. I have pictures of Elaine on Manhattan Beach. However, in talking with her, she talked about the day her daddy came to Stanton School and got them out of class and drove them to the beach and the tears that their daddy shed upon seeing the burn down structure as people, you know, as, as urban rem- new removal is coming in, people are either you're dying because of uh, age or you're moving on because of pressure. And so the last, last structure uh, was Mr. Wilson's structure. And of course, during off beach season, you close down, but you leave a caretaker there. And on this particular day, the structure was burned to ruins as well as the caretaker and the dog that he had with him. And Miss Lassane just told me about the tears that flowed in 1938 when the last structure to remove the black community from the beach occurred. And so that's one of the bitter things. The sweet thing is to hear my mama and her sisters and her brothers tell me about going to Manhattan Beach. And Dr. Hicks, on the 2nd of October in 2021, when there was the dedication of Manhattan Beach, I got an opportunity to go to Hannah Park. And you know what I did? I picked up some sand, and I still have that sand in a bottle alongside. I have three pieces of sand, four pieces of sand. I have American Beach sand. I have sand from Manhattan Beach. I have sand from Egypt, and I have sand from Ghana. The beach is there. That's wonderful. But, yeah, bitter, (laughs) sweet. And the sweet, we just have to hold on. And that it was. Hold on to the memories. Mm-hmm. And I'm just so grateful for all of the pictures that we have found. And uh, I remember Maxie Wilson. He was a kid in school with us. I finished, we and you, and I finished in 1961. Maxie finished in 60. But he was one handsome thing. <laughs> and now to see the picture of his daddy, that is just, or his granddaddy. I don't know what his daddy is. His granddaddy. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's great. And so, yeah, bitter and sweet. And well, and if I may, um, Marsha, when you were talking about that day, um, I want to mention Kenneth Lassane, who is Dr. Hicks's cousin. And he was also instrumental throughout this process of discovery and telling this story. And, um, And unfortunately, he passed away of June of last year. And when Dr. Hicks told me that, um, I found his obituary online. Um, and, you know, through many, many tears, 
reading this obituary, it mentions that his proudest moment was when public officials recognized Manhattan Beach and installed the historical marker. And so it just reinforces why we did this project in the first place, because it was so meaningful. And I recall my first meeting with Dr. Hicks um, at the Jacksonville Public Library in February 2019. And um, and you had tears in your eyes and you said, you know, this has been my family's story for so long, but we just didn't think anyone cared. Mm-hmm. That that is that's so true. That is so true. And I think that on a day like today, if our if my grandmother, his sister could hear this conversation and of course to know all about what what um Manhattan Beach was and how it came to be and how it ended, um, that would be a Good, good story. A good book. <laughs> We've got a call. Curtis on the north side. Good morning, Curtis. Welcome to First Coast Connect. Good morning, everyone. I want to just say thank you so much for this this history. And I, my heart goes out and my uh, respect for everyone that had a hand in restoring this history. Uh, didn't know about it. It's beautiful. I will be there Saturday to the museum with my family. They will be all folks Saturday. We will be there Saturday morning to check all this out. Thank you so much. So just for clarification, the traveling exhibits, um, we have two on display right now, and one of them is at the Adele Grage Center in Atlantic Beach. So it is not on display at the Beaches Museum right now, although we are opening a new exhibit on Friday, um, which we encourage you to come and see. Um, but the Manhattan Beach exhibit will be at the Adele Grage Center in Atlantic Beach, as well as at the Swisher Library at Jacksonville University. So there's information on the Beaches Museum website and our social media pages as far as the hours and how to access those. We wanted the important thing about the traveling exhibits is to get out into the community and not uh, rely on people being able to come to the Beaches Museum. Um, to see these exhibits. So we've had them out at, at libraries um, and different community centers uh, throughout our, our area. And we're going to try to continue to do that um, as long as people are willing to put it on display just to reach that many more people. So we do have it in those two locations for mm-hmm. the month of February, as well and as, as an event tomorrow at Adele Grage uh, from 5 to 7 that um, it'll be a reception and uh, Brittany will be there speaking um, a little bit about Manhattan Beach and um, we'll have uh, a lot of people there to come and see the exhibit right there at the Adele Grage Center in Atlantic Beach. And where is that center located? The Adele Grage Center is um, right in Atlantic Beach on in between Florida East Coast and... I think the address is at 716 Ocean Boulevard. 716 Ocean Boulevard sounds great. It's the former city hall, and it's actually right around the corner from where the Continental Hotel was located, which was Henry Flagler's hotel, and really um, part of the impetus in even the the creation and foundation of Manhattan Beach. So that's why we want to be right there uh, in that area for this uh, exhibit and presentation. Well, it's a great history, and I appreciate all of you being here to share it. Dr. Yvonne Hicks, Marsha Dean Feltz, Chris Hoffman, and Brittany Cohill. Thanks to all of you for being here today. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you. And in just a moment, a local voice with a global perspective. We talk with retired Admiral James Stavridis. Welcome back. I'm joined on the line by retired four-star Navy Admiral and former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, James Stavridis. Welcome. Great to be with you, Anne. Delighted to have you. I'm also joined by Kendra McCary, 
McCrary, president of the Women's Board of Wolfson Children's Hospital. She's here in studio to tell us more about his appearance Monday in Jacksonville. Hey, Kendra. Good morning. Um, Admiral, there is so much, so much going on globally, geopolitically. <laughs> How do you get your bearings? How do you even decide what we should, what to focus on? Three things um, constantly feed the machine of how I'm thinking about the world. Uh, one is my own experiences, um, having spent almost 40 years uh, in the military, and then, as you mentioned, four years as Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. Add to that five years as the dean of a top graduate school of international relations, the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy up at Tufts. So, as you would imagine, I bring quite a bit of personal experience. Point two is uh, I maintain all my security clearances. I'm a fellow at Johns Hopkins uh, Applied Physics Lab in the Baltimore area. And um, as a result, I see a lot of um, high-end information. Now, I'm never going to reveal classified information, but it informs my analysis. And then third and finally, and this is something everyone can do, is simply stay up on events by engaging and uh, spending time on reputable media outlets. Um, I particularly enjoy Washington Post, New York Times, listen a lot to uh, NPR, PBS. Um, and also I read The Economist magazine, uh, basically cover to cover every week. That's good one-stop shopping for folks that want to know the world. So there's a, a kind of a snapshot. From a, just a practical standpoint, though, I mean, we're talking about, you know, Ukraine, Russia, uh, the war there, dispute between China and Taiwan, uh, the the uh, war that's happening between Israel and, and Hamas right now. Um, U.S. is retaliating against Iran and Jordan. I mean, literally, what is your focus? Um, I am uh, very focused on three principal lines of current activity. One is the Middle East, and you mentioned a couple of the points, the way the Houthi rebels backed by Iran are attacking global shipping. That could have real manifestations on glo global supply chains. Alongside that, as you mentioned, the war between Hamas and Israel in the Gaza Strip. But is that going to explode into a wider conflict? Where's the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and all of this? So one principal line of analysis for me is the Middle East. Number two is Ukraine and Russia, because that will impact NATO, our alliances, really the cause of freedom overall. And then third, U.S.-China relations, because these are the two largest economies in the world. You've got to pay attention to how that interaction is unspooling, particularly around the a status of the island of Taiwan. So, yeah, it's a lot to cover. You've got to prioritize. You've got to stay focused. And for me, those are the top three things I'm thinking about at the moment. It's still a lot. As my dad likes to say that, you know, stove only has so many front burners. I mean, you've got three things <laughs> cooking there and they're all massively consequential. Yeah, almost every stove has at least four burners. And I, um, if I were going to add one more burner, it would be cyber, cybersecurity, and artificial intelligence, which kind of cuts across all of those other areas. These are all things I'll be talking about when I have a chance to do this wonderful talk in my hometown, by the way. I'm a, a native Floridian. My wife was actually born in Jacksonville at Baptist Hospital. So i uh, to be able to come and talk to uh, my hometown audience about these big topics is a wonderful opportunity for me. Well, that's terrific. Uh, Kendra, that's a nice segue. So tell us about the Florida Forum Speaker Series that um, the Admiral is going to be a part of on Monday. What is the event? How can people attend? Uh, the Florida Forum is in its 31st year. It's a speaker series hosted to benefit uh, the Women's Board of Wolfson Children's Hospital. So we're raising money for the local children's hospital. Um, people can attend by going to thefloridaforum.com, and tickets are available there. They start at $50 and go up. Um, we'd love to have more people attend. Um, we've been doing this for 31 years, and our goal is to bring world leaders in to engage our local community and uh, stir thought-provoking conversations. And we have every expectation that Admiral Stavridis will be right up there with the best of them. He's He's got a lot of information to share with us, and he is 
so relevant for our world today. We're really excited to be hosting him on Monday. My goodness, so much to to learn from him. I, I wonder, Admiral, um, how do you regard, in terms of just humanity, if you're not trying to look through specifically a United States America lens, is there a group of people or a region that you see as like the most imperiled? I think uh, in the tactical moment, if you uh, are, are here on a Wednesday morning at 940, you have to be mindful of the 2.2 million people trapped in Gaza. Uh, this is a tiny area um, on the southwest corner of Israel. It's 20 miles by six miles. Uh, so it's a very small area. And uh, 2.2 million people are effectively in the middle of a war zone between Israelis, the Israeli Defense Forces, and a terrorist organization, Hamas. Um, so I think of the particularly the children, half of these 2.2 million people are under the age of 18, and they're lacking food, water, medical care. It is a brutal situation. I've been in war zones uh, throughout my long career in the Navy. I know what this is like, and it, it's, it's hard to think of uh, innocent civilians caught in the middle. I think that's uh, a particularly uh, terrible moment um, globally. And yet the U.S. has not supported a ceasefire or, or pressuring Israel to, um, to have a ceasefire. I think uh, the United States has been, uh, as is traditional, very supportive of Israel. Um, and certainly publicly, the United States has not put enormous pressure on Israel yet. Uh, my own sense is there is an awful lot of pressure that is going on off stage, back behind the, the glaring lights of publicity. That's why Secretary of State Tony Blinken, a good friend of mine, has been in uh, Jerusalem five times in the last three months. Um, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has traveled to the region, uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. I think there is an enormous amount of pressure behind the scenes. And oh, by the way, just uh, 10 days ago, President Biden categorized the Israeli uh, level of military activity in Gaza as, quote, over the top, unquote. Um, so I think that pressure is building in. And uh, certainly the United States has uh, leverage in this situation as a provider of military equipment and and financial support to Israel. Um, personal opinion, I think it's time we stepped in and pushed harder because in the long run, that's the right thing for Israel. It's, you know, you, you have a obviously a background in the military, NATO, the Navy. Um, I wonder, though, if you think that the world's greatest, like, geostrategic threats are, in fact, humanity's greatest challenges. Uh, uh, things like climate change seem to be perhaps an overarching greater danger perhaps than any of these, you know, disputes between nations. Uh, I agree with you. And, and let me frame it this way. Um, five years ago, I sat down and thought, okay, I want to write three books that highlight the great challenges we are going to face in the 21st century. Um, the first one was set in the year 2034, and that's the title. It's 2034, a novel of the next world war. It's about the U.S. and China stumbling into a military conflict. That's the kind of traditional view of threat. But the next novel, the one that actually comes out in a month, is called 2054, set in the year 2054, and it deals with cybersecurity, artificial intelligence. I think the challenges that are emerging uh, from that are going to be profound for the world. And the third novel, this is your point, is called 2084, a novel of climate and war. And if we don't make the adjustments now, we are going to induce geopolitical conflict that will come home to roost probably in the 50 to 70 year future. So all of those things ought to concern us. Um, I think climate is a profoundly uh, enormous challenge for the planet, yes. And it can play, too, into military 
um, situations. I mean, not only can catastrophic weather impact, you know, military operations, but global migration, global migration itself, you know, seems to be a, a threat to entire continents in terms of their political and, and financial stability. Absolutely. Let me add to your excellent point. Um, adding to that are sea level rising as ice melts in the polar regions, sea levels rise, and coastal cities um, will become swamped. That'll contribute to migration, to economic catastrophe. You already mentioned the, the necessity of um, militaries responding to these massive megastorms, these wildfires that are spreading. Um, and then third and finally, as the ice melts in the polar regions, geopolitical competition will heat up because those resources, oil, gas, shipping lanes, all become wide open. And what nations border the Arctic? I'll tell you, it's Russia on one side of that Arctic porch, and on the other side are five NATO nations. So we've got a built-in thunderdome at the top of the world. All of that will create real instability that could be avoided if we could reduce climate challenges uh, earlier in this century. That's obviously a huge topic. I want to just ask you about what's in the news right now, the death of Alexei Navalny, and my curiosity, if you think that that's going to have any bearing on, for instance, the right's recent embrace of Vladimir Putin and Russia, whether his death and the circumstances you know, of his life um, and his, his advocacy ha have any bearing on the debate that's happening here in terms of funding Ukraine and you know, what side we're on, so to speak. Yeah, let's start with Alexander Navalny, who is a enormous hero. He literally gave his life uh, in the cause of freedom and democracy. He knew walking back into Russia was tantamount to a death sentence for him, and that's exactly what occurred. Um, my heart goes out to his wife, Julia, and I am um, always hopeful that his spirit will continue somehow over time to uh, help the people of Russia throw off this monstrous dictator, Vladimir Putin. To your point, will it will it impact here in the United States, particularly on the uh, far right uh, world, which has spent uh, a fair amount of time this year pushing back on aid to Ukraine, which obviously is beneficial to Vladimir Putin. Unfortunately, I don't think so. I don't think it will move the needle. It should. It ought to be an object lesson placed directly in front of our vision of how terrible Vladimir Putin is and what, what his future, Vladimir Putin's future, is for Ukraine if he conquers it. And by the way, he won't stop at Ukraine. He will then push on into Moldova, potentially into NATO countries like Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. He is a dangerous, single-minded, focused killer. And uh, the death of Navalny ought to move the debate here, but sadly, I don't think it will. Well, retired Admiral James Stavridis, he will be at the Florida Forum Speaker Series on Monday, February 26th. The program begins at 7. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Admiral. Thanks a lot. And last thought, the first half of the lecture, we'll talk about all the things we talked about. The second half will be, okay, what should we do about it? How all right. can we avoid these challenges? Thanks thank for you. having me on. Thanks so much. And Kendra, thanks for being here. Thank you. We'll be back in just a minute with the Jack's PBS Kids Writing Contest and a budding second grade author. Mosh's 2024 Gala takes you from galaxy to garden, a celebration of fantastical elements found in our backyard. This event supports the Mosh Genesis Initiative to create a new state-of-the-art museum. More info at mosh.org. 
from prison in London. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange is fighting extradition to the U.S., where he faces charges of espionage. His lawyers are making their final arguments in a British court. They also say their client's health is in decline. I'm Marco Werman. The fate of Julian Assange and more global news next time on The World. This afternoon at 3, here on WJCT News 89.9. This week, China's Coast Guard began patrolling the waters near the Pasquadors, or Penghu, the tiny archipelago of islands tucked between Taiwan and China. The fishers of Penghu see firsthand the tensions between the two places. Hear that story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Starting at 4 on WJCT News 89.9. It's a line you can draw from Nefertiti through to Amy Winehouse. Next time on 1A, we track the cultural impact of eyeliner on nomads in Chad to geishas in Japan, from dancers in India to drag queens in New York and more. Join me, Jen White, as we revisit my conversation with writer Zara Henkier. She says eyeliner's history is rich, fun, and far from frivolous. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. Classical 24 brings listeners beautiful music from around the world, featuring the best of classical music from the all-time greats to the newest composers and performances. Download the WJCT app or visit wjct.org slash jacksmusic to start listening today. We're back. And if you're an aspiring young writer, listen up. The Jack's PBS Kids Writers Contest is now underway, and children in grades K through 3 are highly encouraged to share their work. The final day for submissions is March 15th, and I'm joined now by WJCT's Grants and Outreach Education Manager, Cersei Lenoble. Welcome, Cersei. Thanks, Anne. And Taylor, a writer and second grader now at Mandarin Oaks Elementary. Hey, Taylor. Hi. Thanks so much for being here. Cersei, what is Jack's PBS Kids Writers Contest? So this is something we are now celebrating our 30th year doing at WJCT. It started out as the Reading Rainbow Writers and Illustrators Contest, for those of us that can remember. And each year we ask for submissions for students in kindergarten through third grade to send us their stories. They, we ask them to write a story and do some illustrations, and they send us in, send them in, and we get the joy of reading them all. And Taylor uh, made a submission last year, which she brought. Um, she is a returning writer. Um, people like Taylor, who should enter? Who is the ideal candidate for this contest? Any kid, kindergarten through third grade. It, you don't have to be in public school. You don't have to be in private school. You can be in homeschool. Just You know, we accept any and all submissions. We also get some from out of state. It's very exciting. Taylor, tell us about the story that you wrote last year. What was the name of it? Where is Mama? And that introduced us to a certain chicken. What was that chicken's name? Pippi. Okay. And so this year you've written another story? Yes. What's what's that one called? Yummy Candy and Pippi. And so this is a continuing character. You brought Pippi back. Yes. What do you like about writing? Um, it really brings my cre- creativity, and I like to um, get my knowledge out and thinking out of the box. And what is your favorite thing when it comes to a story like this? Is it the drawing? Is it the story itself? I like the writing because I have to think of it. It's one of thinking. Mm-hmm. And Cersei, this is an opportunity for kids to get involved and to tell stories, but it's also something that educators can um, get their students involved with. Absolutely. We accept um, individual submissions, and we also have had teachers who send in, use it as classroom work. And so it's great when we receive 30 stories all with the word chrysanthemum, because chrysanthemum is a spelling word. And one year it was leprechaun. So um, it's it's great seeing the creativity of the kids. It's just it's the best part of my job. And what is the judging process like? So it must be difficult. It it's a challenge, but um, we have 
judges who volunteer their time, and each story gets read by five different judges, and they have a rubric, and so they score it, and so that's how we determine grade-level winners. So we have first, second, and third for uh, each K, first, second, and third grades. And then um, the winners of those grade levels go on to be public voting for the People's Choice Award, which is all happens on the Writers' Contest website. And then um, the winner of who gets the most public votes wins the uh, People's Choice Award. And Taylor, um, from your first story, Where is Mama, to the current one, um, what is the first story, the chicken kind of learned a lesson, is that right, about going away from home? Yes, ma'am. And um, what happens in the second, in this newest one, the yummy candy? So Pippi goes on an Easter hunt, and his mom tells him to not eat the candy from the eggs yet because it, um, he might be allergic to something in the in the treats. And what does Pippi listen? No, he doesn't. So Pippi, in these books, it seems to be a little bit of a theme that maybe he has some learning to do. Yes. Yeah. Is there? Do you know anybody like that? No. No. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, your penmanship has gotten really, really good. How long did it take you to work on this story this year? About two hours. Okay. Pretty good. Very efficient. Um, Cersei, what do people need to do if they want to get involved? All they have to do is go to our website, um, wjct.org slash writers contest. And there are rules. Um, There's an entry form. Um, There's samples of previous years. They can see all the stories that we've had for several years published online, and then they can also see the videos of the winners reading their stories. We also do that for the grade-level winners. And um, then just write, send us their best story and their best drawings and mail them to us. Just need to be postmarked by March 15th. And are there prizes beyond just bragging rights here? Yes, yes, we do have prizes. Anything that you uh, want to highlight? Well, for the People's Choice, they get a $100 gift card. And um, for the grade level winners, um, we have prize packages. And then we also ask them to read their stories live at Be My Neighbor Day. Awesome. Well, we so appreciate you being here. Cersei, Lenoble, and Taylor, thanks so much for sharing your story. You're welcome. Thanks. And that's our program. Send your feedback or suggestions for future conversations to First Coast Connect at wjct.org. And if you missed anything, you can catch the rebroadcast at 8 o'clock or find today's show at wjct.org and on your favorite podcast platform. The executive producer of First Coast Connect is David Luckin. Our producer is Stacey Bennett. Kathy Waterman is our associate producer, and our show is directed by Brady Corum. Join us again Thursday when we talk to a panel of local Black journalists about the rewards and challenges of their chosen profession. I'm Ann Schindler, and you've been listening to First Coast Connect on WJCT News 89.9. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.